Welcome to the Academy Podcast, a podcast dedicated to sharing rich content for the purpose of spiritual growth. The Academy Podcast is brought to you by the Academy for Spiritual Formation, an international ministry of the Upper Room. The Academy is dedicated to creating safe space for people to connect with God, self, others, and creation for the sake of the world. To learn more about our five-day and two-year retreat offerings, visit academy.upperroom.org. I'm your host, Claire McKeever-Burgett, and I serve as the Associate Director of the Academy. I'm also ordained clergy, a birth and postpartum doula, a yoga, dance, and movement instructor, a writer, a mother, a partner, a friend. We're glad you're here. In this month's episode, we hear from Roger Owens on the topic of prayer and spirituality in a postmodern world. Taken from his lectures, he offered in August 2011 at a five-day academy in Alabama. Roger received his Ph.D. in theology from Duke University, where he was awarded a Lilly Fellowship for the formation of a learned clergy. Before that, he completed his MDiv at Duke Divinity School, and as an undergraduate, he studied philosophy and Bible at Anderson University in Indiana. An ordained elder in the North Carolina Annual Conference of the United Methodist Church, Roger is an academy faculty member and served both urban and rural churches before joining the faculty at Pittsburgh Theological Seminary. Associate Professor of Christian Spirituality and Ministry, Roger's work centers on postmodern spirituality and finding the sacred in the present reality of our lives. Roger is married to the Reverend Ginger Thomas, who is a two-year Academy alum and an ordained United Methodist pastor. Roger and Ginger are the parents of three children, Simeon, Silas, and Mary Claire. To see all things as they truly are, all things suspended by God's divine mercy. This is the work of the saints, says Roger, and not just of the saints, it is the work of all of us. Listen on as Roger illumines God's presence of mercy and love in all things, and may you have ears to hear and eyes to see and hearts to open to the sacredness of all. Enjoy. Secular and sacred. We ended yesterday talking about the dichotomies and the dualisms character of modern, characteristic of modernity, and there's maybe none more significant than this. Secular and sacred. There is secular stuff, secular realm, secular places. There is sacred stuff, sacred realm, sacred places, and everyone's happier when the two realms stay in their place. It's a distinction we could count on. It could structure our lives. We had sacred times and sacred places. We knew where we had to go to find God, and we were happy with it that way. One of the ways this plays out, and I imagine we're not going to do it, uh, but I imagine if we took the time uh, to just talk about how how this sacred-secular distinction we've allowed to structure our lives... Uh, we would find that one of the most important distinctions is in the notion of place. This idea of a sacred um, place and secular places. Uh, If you're familiar, I'm sure you are, with the spiritual traditions of the British Isles, 
you know that these are called thin places, sacred places. A thin place is a location where the veil between our ordinary, everyday world of washing uh, dishes and changing diapers and a spiritual world, some other world with a capital O, is thin, it is sheer. You find a thin place, you've stumbled onto a place where it's easy to touch the sacred, the spiritual realm. According to writer Mindy Burgoyne, uh, it takes some spiritual discernment to notice the difference between a thin place and an ordinary place sometimes. The world is suspended by God's grace. Every bit of it suspended. No longer on its own foundations. This is the, this is the goal of the secular, right? To stand on its own foundations. It's the goal of some of us as well. To stand on our own foundations. The goal of the secular is to stand on its own foundations, no other. To be left alone to be free from any association with its divine origin, any notion of dependence. But this is the vision of the saint. To see the world, all things as they truly are, suspended from God, equally held, and holding in them the sign of their origin. To see in all things suspended by God's divine mercy, the sign and presence of God himself. The vision that perhaps Francis can teach us to have as we try to live beyond the division between the secular and the sacred. Well, obviously, learning to live in this breakdown requires learning. Unless, I mean, we could all dig holes and go spend a month there and hope to have this this rather radical transformation, but for most of us, uh, it's going to take some time to learn. We're going to learn to see by developing two arts, the art of intention and the art of attention. Intention and attention. Intention simply means learning to cultivate the desire, the want to see the world this way. The wanting to see your uh, own living room and your backyard and your sanctuary and, and your bathroom, wherever, as sacred places. And then attention is learning actually to see them that way, taking the time. But this wonderful little poem of Mary Oliver's called, I mean, isn't this what poets get paid the big bucks for, right? To, to pay attention on our behalf because we don't have the time to do it. This little poem called Praying from her book, Thirst. What a wonderful book. It doesn't have to be the blue iris. It could be weeds. You see right there, there's that breakdown. It doesn't have to be the blue iris. It could be weeds in a vacant lot or a few small stones. Just pay attention, then patch a few words together and don't try to make them elaborate. This isn't a contest, but the doorway into thanks and the silence in which another voice may speak. I mean, think about that poem for just a minute, right? It's, it's something beautiful. I mean, who, um, of course, we all see God in the blue iris, right? I mean, it's the blue iris. But what about the weeds in the vacant lot or the dandelion that you're desperate to kill in your front yard? 
You know, I always say one man's weed is another man's flower. I mean, you know, the dandelion in your... And pay attention, and this becomes a doorway. I mean, I'm... Okay, I, I mean... Look, like she stepped in, the weeds in the vacant lot, uh, the, the veil was, was breached right then and there uh, without booking a flight anywhere else because she paid attention. She stepped into a silence in which another voice may speak. It's the same transition that happens in the exam and it's the same transition that happens in spiritual directions, the same transit right there in that vacant lot where you would have least expected it. And then, of course, there's the biblical vision as well. In Genesis chapter 28, Jacob left Beersheba and went toward Haran. He came to a certain place and stayed there for the night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones of that place, he put it under his head and lay down in that place. And he dreamed that there was a ladder set up on the earth, the top of it reaching to heaven. And the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And the Lord stood beside him and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and to your offspring. And your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth. And you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and the north and to the south. And all the families of the earth shall be blessed in you and in your offspring. Know that I am with you and will keep you wherever you go. And will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Then Jacob woke from his dream and said, his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place. And I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, How awesome is this place? This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. So Jacob rose early in the morning, like we do at the academy. And he took the stone that he had put under his head and set it up for a pillar and poured oil on the top of it. And he called that place Bethel, which means, of course, the house of God, the gate of heaven. I went um, camping for the first time a couple years ago with my boys. I had never been camping uh, before. And we went with some, um, some more experienced camping families in the church. And so I managed to borrow some, uh, a tent uh, and uh, some sleeping bags. And then I packed all kinds of other stuff that I, I mean, you know, how was I supposed to know what a dad and his two boys needed to survive a whole night, right? I mean, three miles from civilization. Let's be clear here. So I packed a lot of, uh, a lot of stuff. And we had great fun until the sleeping part uh, happened. I mean, those of you experienced campers would know this, but that ground was hard. No one had, no one had told me this. And it was hard for me, and it was hard for the boys, and the tent we had borrowed was really, I think, intended for one person or maybe two very, very small people. But the three of us were crammed in this tent, and then, despite the fact that I packed everything in our house, I forgot anything like a pillow. So Simeon was sleeping on a rolled up um, uh, uh, sweatshirt, and I had a t-shirt under my head, and Silas, actually, we had borrowed this tiny, tiny little sleeping bag, way too small for him, and it had tucked in it a pillow about the size of my wallet. And so he did have a pillow. On the way out, we're driving out of the Eno River State Park, and I said, boys, wasn't that fun? I mean, did you have a good time or what? Would you want to do it? Oh, this was the best fun we've ever had. We've never had so much fun. Except, if we do this again, we need three things, and they were absolutely clear, like they had talked about this before I asked them. We're going to need a bigger tent, we're going to need softer sleeping bags, and we're going to need to bring a pillow. 
Jacob forgot his pillow. But he didn't forget his pillow because he was just uh, absent-minded. He forgot it because he was on the run. Right? He, he tricked his brother one too many times, and so his mom comes to, me and, comes to him and says, look, your brother's planning to kill you. Please get out of here. He says, okay, I will get out of here. And so he runs along. He leaves in a hurry because he's afraid for his life. And on the run, he goes and he, I love that it just says in the scripture, right? He comes to a certain place. He just comes to a certain place. He's tired and he needs to rest. So he finds a rock and he puts it under his head. And somehow, having forgot his pillow, he still manages to fall asleep. And that's where he has his dream and everything changes. Now, at first glance, you might think that Jacob has discovered one of these thin places, right? He stumbled onto a thin place, one of those special places where God is particularly close. But I think if you read the story, it makes you wonder because there's absolutely nothing interesting about this place at all. There's nothing that distinguishes it from any other place. It's anonymous. The story, he came to a certain place. It's just a certain place. It's no important place at all. He didn't stop because he saw the beautiful sunset there or because there was some babbling brook in the background that made him think this was a special place or because there was some spiritual magnetic power that was calling him and drawing him to stop here. So he says, I should stop here. This is the place. No, he's just tired. It's time to stop. This place could be your backyard or it could be the playground at your church or the playground at your kid's school. It could be a rest area on the interstate. It could be the side of the road where I was broken down for an hour on Monday. He has not found a holy place. Jacob has found an ordinary place. And that's where God finds him. The search for sacred places is natural to humanity. We like the feelings of awe. We like the wonder. We like to go into the great cathedrals of Europe the kinds of buildings that take our breath away, that help us to remember the thousands and millions of pilgrims who have prayed in this place. And we, it's easy for us to go into a place like that and say, this is the house of God, this is the gate of heaven. But who would ever think that sleeping in a nameless place, a no place, an ordinary place, out under the stars with a stone for your pillow might be the place where you encounter God, might be the place where God discovers you. Here's another way to put it. We want to find a place where there's a ladder we can climb to another world, maybe a magic wardrobe like the children in Narnia, just slip through on accident. A ladder we can climb to a spiritual world, but what we discover is in our ordinary lives, the ladder drops from heaven, not for us to climb up, but for God to climb down. And that can happen anytime, anywhere, any place. With this God who called Abraham and Sarah and promised them a child and gave their child Isaac two sons who fought, so one of them had to run away. This God is not a God you find in the sacred grove or on the mountain. You don't go and search for this God like all the rest. This is the God who finds you wherever you are. And this is the God who goes with you. And it just so happens that this is a God who likes camping. Right? At Christmas. 
We always read it. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And you've heard your preachers say this, that that phrase, dwelt among us, could be literally translated, pitched his tent among us. A God who likes camping in Jesus Christ, God pitched his tent among us. God climbed down the ladder, not at a thin place, but in a human person, and pitched a tent. God forgot his pillow, too. Jacob and I are in good company. Foxes have holes. And birds of the air have nests. But the Son of Man, Jesus says, has no place to lay his head. Jesus didn't have a place. He didn't set up an office or a church or a shrine where you come to him. His tent was portable, like God's first tent in the wilderness. He wasn't tied down. He moved around. I'm thinking about Augustine, but we don't have time to talk about Augustine. But Augustine searched for God for a long time. Let's just put it that way. And at the end of the search for God, right, what is the, the, the amazing discovery he makes? That all along, God was closer to me than I was to myself. God was closer to me than the very breath, than my very last breath, my most recent breath. breath. God is closer to me than that. Jesus has pitched his tent among us in every ordinary place we can meet. Now, this is pretty good news, I think. It's good news for us who don't have the money to fly to Europe and tour cathedrals or to go to the rolling hills of Ireland or the ashrams of India to find God. This is pretty good news for those of us who have elderly parents to care for or tiny children to nurture. God can meet you opening a can of Ensure in a nursing home. God can meet you opening a, a tub of yogurt for a messy toddler. God can meet you in a place no more special than the cubicle in your office or the sink in your kitchen or in the bleachers at a kid's soccer game. Wherever you go is a thin place. Not because the place is so special, but because God's tent is portable. And in Jesus Christ, God has chosen to find us where we are rather than waiting around for us to find him. We've been hanging out with poetry the past few episodes because, as Roger points out, poets are paid the big bucks to help us pay attention to the sacred in all things. As a poet myself, I laughed out loud at the paid the big bucks line. We all know there's not a lot of money in poetry or writing or in any of the things that help us tend to the inner life. Tending to these subtle miracles might save our lives and our souls but it will never create more money or power or public recognition or fame or esteem or any of the things that help us get ahead in this world. Yet, this is the point. We write poetry. We pause to stare at an earthworm crawling from the ground after a hard rain. We listen to the bee buzz by our ear. We take a moment to breathe before speaking. We lie down in the grass. We giggle with our children, not for money or recognition, but for pure joy, 
and big love and deep abiding peace. We begin to hang out more and more in the muddy waters of the secular and sacred because we realize it's all we really have and all we really want and that it's always been more than enough. When my son was only a few months old, a friend offered me the poem, One Good Thing, penned by the poet, playwright, composer, and educator Edwin Romand. It seems the perfect close to our journey into the ordinary that is really extraordinary, that is really sacred and mysterious and love and God and all that keeps us alive and breathing and creating and sustaining and more. Hear it with me now. It's been a dead parade of hours since 5 a.m. A march of the bland with the meaningless, and I can think of nothing I have done to merit mentioning or remembering. But now at 8 p.m., I am bathing my son in a tub filled with bubbles and blue battleships. The soapy water over his Irish white skin makes him glisten like a glazed donut. And I should tell him to stop splashing, but this is the first time all day I have felt like living, so how can I scold my boy who's found joy in something ordinary as water? And when I wash his hair with Buzz Lightyear shampoo, Liam closes his eyes and smiles like a puppy being petted as I massage the sweet lotion into his red curls. And I know this is one good thing I have done with my life. This day that has waited for this moment of water on my sleeve and soap on my nose to turn emptiness into ecstasy. To hear more from faculty like Roger Owens, who are spiritual directors, pastors, professors, authors, and experienced pilgrims and practitioners in the area of spiritual formation, join us at the next five-day or two-year academy. For more information, visit academy.upperroom.org.